there's one main idea that I think I'm consistently trying to tend to trend towards in my life, it is effortless flow. An effortless flow meaning understanding my own chemical makeup, my relationship to others, how I interact with others, what is my natural tendency when I interact with others, how do I influence others, how do I end up creating conflict with others, um, and then also how do I take care of myself, how do I meet my needs, how do I make sure that my body is in equilibrium, how do I make sure my mental health is being consistently taken care of. And so for me, a lot of those ingredients involve all sorts of various systems and different methods of understanding, and that's typically what I try to cover on this podcast. So one of the things I want to talk about is the Enneagram subtypes, and particularly the instincts, <clears throat> and how the instincts create subtypes, and how those instincts can be something to consider in terms of your day-to-day -day management of your physical, mental, and spiritual health, and emotional health. And so... What we're going to do is, you know, I'm going to ask you to go to audibletrial.com slash dopamine if you want to support the channel and sign up for Audible where you can get uh, 30 days for free and get your first ebook for free. And uh, it, there's so many amazing books out there. There's so many amazing uh, ideas that you can listen to while you're on the go, namely a lot of Enneagram related books. And uh, I believe the book Flow. I can't, Mahali, I think is his first name and his last name is impossible for me to, um, to state, but he talks about flow and flow is one of the ideas that I'm trying to get myself into more and more throughout my life. And, um, that starts by asking myself tough questions. So we're going to talk about the Enneagram instincts, asking myself those tough questions and perhaps connecting this to you in your life and what comes up for you. So let's go ahead and hit the button and do the thing. Let's go. So there are a lot of questions I ask myself. First of all, welcome back to Dopamine. My name is Christian Rivera, aka C-Note, and uh, this is a show that's basically all about asking myself tough questions and talking about healing and acceptance and empowerment and creativity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this, this podcast has never really landed on one particular thing other than sharing my story with you and then hoping that resonates and that there's something that you can take from it and apply to your own life. And in this case is no different. I want to talk about the Enneagram instincts and how those Enneagram instincts very much show up within all of us in varying ways. So there are three dominant instincts that you think about when it comes to the ways that we interact as human animals, because we are animals. Um, I know the modern world makes us makes it believe that we are not necessarily an animal, but uh, we are very much interfacing with with animal life. Um, so if you go out into the wilderness, something may want to eat you <laughs> and probably will. And so that in turn makes you a part of this human ecosystem, this, this uh, worldwide ecosystem of life and energy exchanges and all of that stuff. And with those energy exchanges comes instincts of self-preservation, of social blending or connection, and then uh, sexual or one-to-one -one bonding, fusion, um, and uh, more of a, an assertiveness and an attack mode of sorts. So, you know, you've got these ideas of like flight, fight, or freeze, right? 
and uh, or fawn is another one as well. And so if you've got self-preservation, typically that can come up as like more of a freeze response, more of the idea of the goat that just like they they hear a loud noise and they just play dead mode <laughs> and just like uh, freeze up. That's a little bit of the self-preservation idea. And then you've got the social type that is more of a blending in. You think of it as like a flock of sheep and the flock feels safe because they are part of the group. Now, not every type is going to be embedded in the group. They may have a different kind of relationship to a group and that gets more nuanced. Um, but then there's also the sexual subtype that gets more connected to this idea of more one-to-one -one bonding. It's like me and my buddy or me and my mate or me and my partner, uh, we are kind of combining our strengths or combining our energies or combining the, the, the fusion, the bond that we have is what makes me stronger or connects me to a, a spiritual essence. In a lot of ways, sometimes these uh, different um, instincts can be access points to uh, a spiritual essence, uh, to, to self, or at least like a kind of a conduit to it. Maybe not the thing necessarily, but it can be sort of a conduit to it. So when I'm talking about these instincts, <clears throat> And I'm only talking about it again in like the way that I know how to, um, based on my experience of self-observation and things that I've learned from Beatrice Chestnut and Aranio Piaz and my work with Personality Hacker. Um, these instincts sort of stack in a sequence, and it's not quite like the Myers-Briggs types. They stack in a specific order that usually represents and means something. So you've got the dominant instinct which can be one of the three, self-preservation, social, or sexual, or one-to-one. One-to-one uh, -one and sexual are the same thing. I'm just using different language because you might see different language in different places. Um, but I'm going to use the word sexual from now on. <clears throat> just know that I'm also referencing one-to-one -one as the possible thing. Um, uh, there's a noise in the background. I'm going to pause for a second. So these instincts typically fall into a sequence. And so you can think of it as the dominant, secondary, and then repressed. I don't know if secondary is necessarily the right term, but it's more of like a stasis, a, an equilibrium. If you think of it as like a seesaw, the dominant is almost doing too much. The secondary is like a stabilizing force. And then you've got the repressed, which is the third. And it can be it's sort of easy to deduce which one you are based on which one is maybe the thing you do too much and the one you do the least. The one that's kind of standard might be a little bit difficult to figure out because it's just sort of natural and it doesn't cause you problems. It's just sort of like your, your more comfortable rhythm. So someone who's maybe a self-preservation dominant may have a fixation on, you know, in different ways on different things on something that keeps them, makes them feel safe. It could be relationships, it could be groceries, it could be food, it could be thinking about when your next meal is, it could be a sense of comfort, it could be um, uh, it could be making sure that you're prepared, it could be all sorts of various things that makes you feel like you're protecting yourself, right? So it's very much an inward self, not inward, but it's, it's self-protective, right? Self-preservation. So it's a very singular, just making sure that I'm safe more than anything. 
And a lot of self-preservation dominants who are entering relationships look for someone who makes them feel safe. And that's very important to a self-preservation person is to feel safe. And, uh, but just like any dominant instinct that can be too much, like you can overdo it. And, um, then there's the sexual instinct, which is a one-to-one instinct that is about bonding and connection, but it can be also, uh, around causing, you know, depending on the, the subtype, depending on the Enneagram type that it's connected to can be related to a, um, causing some sort of stir or drama, you know, it's like adrenaline, right? Where self-preservation can maybe have a little bit of a connection to anxiety and being sort of afraid and worried, afraid or worried. I think worried fits a lot of self-preservations more. Uh, With sexual dominance, it's a little bit more of an adrenaline. It's like a high, it's an excitement, an energy movement, right? It's a a little bit more of an anxiousness and excitement. So it's not, uh, not anxiety in terms of like, uh, uh, like fear, but anxiety in terms of anxious, like excited. And so that kind of energy can come out with a sexual dominant and I'm a sexual dominant. So that can very much, that's something I relate to is I can sometimes get into flight mode too much and keep myself too busy and uh, not really know how to slow down. I have kind of this challenge between, uh, personally, this challenge between being very work-focused and doing a lot of things and then getting myself to like slow down and do self-care and like the traditional form of self-care of slowing down and breathing and lighting candles and all of the talking softly and blah, 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 blah. blah. Usually when I'm in a social setting or I'm connecting with someone one-to-one, I'm very connective and charismatic it is there is a relationship to sexual attraction as well like trying to be attractive and that really depends again on the enneagram type how that's going to manifest but there is a sort of a desire for being desired and a desire to desire uh in a lot of ways and so i find that very interesting as i definitely had a lot of drama growing up related to i mean i loved it when like more than one person was maybe interested in me or fighting over me, or I would, uh, very much try, like, I, I, this is awful, but I very much believed in the mantra of like, just cause there's a goalie doesn't mean you can't score. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I went towards the adrenaline and excitement of, of, of drama in a lot of ways. I'm not saying everyone, every sexual dominant does that, but there's an assertiveness and a lot of sexual dominants find it very easy to stand your ground and to, uh, stick up for yourself. And um, so if we go over to the social side, social can be tricky because it really depends on the type. So like a social one, for example, who is trying to, so ones are typically trying to be good or behave or be perfect um, to avoid judgment. So a social one will be the demonstration of what it means to be a good person in a particular context or in a particular community, right? So being the best player or the best wrestler or the best a church goer or the best, you know, family man or whatever. Right. Um, and, and someone that can really, you know, take care of what's going on around you and really demonstrating in, in the own person's, uh, ideal demonstrating what that means to the group in a way. So that's why I mean, like social is not necessarily always about being in the group. Social can be about demonstration to the group or can be speaking to the group or leading a group or guiding a group. 
and um, or you know it could be also be hiding within a group or giving power to a group um, should the situation need be or fusing and blending into a group or keeping yourself busy to appear or feel like you're a part of a group. It really depends on the Enneagram type for that. But there is this sort of like blending into the herd or being a part of a herd or having some relationship to the herd. And so I think Spider-Man in the movies, at least, I think all three Spider-Men um, in the movies, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and um, what's his face? Uh, Tom Holland. <laughs> I think they all have had a social sexual relationship. So social first, meaning that they feel a compulsion to be a part of the community of New York City and saving it and taking care of it, especially in the Tom Holland movies. He very much wanted to be a part of the Avengers and they all have different versions because they're all different Enneagram types. But I think it is very much that conundrum of like, I want to save the city and be responsible and, and do what I can because I have this power with great power comes responsibility, comes great responsibility. But then there's the push and pull of wanting to have this deep, intimate fusion and relationship with Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy, depending on the context. And so that's the great push and pull, right? Is like the people he really deeply cares about tends to get hurt because he's very much overdoing the social part of his instinctual stack. So I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. And so secondarily, you know, it's, if you think about it going all the way down, you've got this dominant instinct where the seesaw part of it is like up and like you're maybe using it too much. Right. And then the secondary one is a little bit easier, a little bit harder to tell because it's just something you do. It's like unconscious almost. So for me, I'm social second. And so the idea of me, like I'm a social one. So I'm a sexual one, which means I typically am trying to help others improve or behave or be good or whatever version, like be a better person essentially. And, um, I have social second. I very much can overdo that social, that sexual instinct and try to help, uh, try to interject that too much, that helping too much or trying to make someone better a little too much. Whereas with social second, this idea of naturally speaking to a, to a one a person or speaking to someone who's a part of a group or speaking to a few people in like a small context, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, if you put me on stage and I needed to talk to people about a topic, I would feel very comfortable doing that. Uh, and so talking on this podcast is very natural to me. It's a way of using my sexual instinct to connect one-to-one -to, -one to you listening but then I'm also, I know that I'm talking to INTPs. I know I'm sharing with people who need help, who need support. And I can very much share some of my own experience with the group in a sense. So since I'm sexual first, social second, that's basically what I've been thinking about and why what sparked this podcast episode is that I've been trying to figure out my personal relationship to communities, to the group, to tribes, to how I can be of service. Because I've seen all sorts of amazing people, especially with social media, who have the dominant instinct and are able to rally the masses or be a part of some big community in some sense. And I don't necessarily feel that kind of pull. And I think that's the challenge is like I said, with the social instinct, you may not necessarily be embedded in a group or part of a group. You may have a relationship to a group. So for me, I'm realizing that through my dominant one-to-one -one instinct, 
I'm able to connect one-on-one -on -one with you, for example, listening, and then you have a relationship to a group, perhaps, perhaps. And I'm just using for the sake of example, let's pretend that you do have some sort of social pull, right? And so you take these ideas and you run with them and it creates this like this, this kinetic effect where I share an idea with you, you share this idea with two people, they share the idea with two people, they share the idea with two people and it just cascades, right? And that's kind of the idea. Whereas I'm not necessarily the best at rallying people and standing in front of a crowd and, um, you know, making them all unify under one thing. I'm much more about one-to-one. -one. So I have this social, this sexual social relationship where I don't just want to make my partner better because if you have sexual first and then social last or social repressed, it may be more focused on just you and your partner. Whereas with me, I'm so sexual social. So sexual social, meaning I want to have a lot of one-to-one -one relationships, um, a lot of one-to-one -one intimacy. And it doesn't necessarily mean sexual, though I confuse that for sexual relationships, like literally sexual relationships and rela uh, partnerships. It's more so about intimate connections and supporting people on a one-to-one -one basis. So I would have, I tried in the past of like starting YouTube channels or starting all sorts of things where I would expect like the masses to come to my blog or whatever I was creating when I'm starting to realize that my power comes from the one-to-one -one relationships. And so when I say someone's overdoing the dominant instinct, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be a bad thing forever, right? Uh, Aranio Paez on their CP Enneagram uh, website, they have all of these great backend videos where you pay like $29 a month and they've got all sorts of uh, in-depth material about things like instincts and talking about the dominant instinct and repressed instinct and all of the individual subtypes. All of that stuff's really incredible. And I do suggest that you go check that out if that's something you're interested in. And so learning about all of these things has really helped me to, to, I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, being able to realize that my one-to-one -one connection is a strength is Okay, I know what I was going to say. Um, to realize that my one-to-one -one connection is a strength has been a result of the growth that I've growth work that I've done. So Aranio Pius talks about it as like four different stages of growth, where your sexual, let's say you've got a whatever your dominant instinct is, it's like a little puppy at first, right? You're growing and developing as a person, and it needs to just be let off the leash, and it needs to make mistakes, and it needs to pee on the floor and it needs to do whatever it needs to do in order to start to learn what it needs to pull back on and what it needs to uh, regroup on and, and adjust to. And then the dog gets a little bit older and they start to take up more territory and that sort of instinct is almost causing more damage, right? When it's a puppy and a puppy's like ripping at things, it's like, oh, it's cute. It's like ripping a little thing. But when a puppy gets older, starts ripping more stuff, you're like, this thing is ruining my life. <laughs> It's kind of what the dominant instinct sort of starts to do. Um, so Ronio talks about putting a leash on it. And then the next stage being it start, it's still growing and it transforms into a lion. And at that point, you can't put a lion on a leash. You need to put the lion in a cage, which means you need to kind of push down that dominant instinct for a little bit. You need to let it back. You need to back off. You need to not give it so much attention. And so... 
after that, the fourth stage is that after there's a, a decent amount of time, like kind of pushing it down for a while and not letting it run your life, then you can learn to tame it and bring it out into the world and almost ride it like a dragon. And it becomes like a power that you can use. And I think that's what I'm trying to learn how to do is use it as a power of sorts. And so this sexual social energy is something I'm trying to figure out how to do. Like I'm playing with the idea of doing one-to-one asynchronous coaching for INTPs or really anyone who might be interested in working with me, because I don't want to necessarily be on a phone call and do a zoom call or like a one-on-one thing where I'm sitting for an hour and listening to someone talk all the way through. I would rather do it asynchronously. We can send quick messages back and forth. I can help you with something. Um, and have, you know, access to me and I can support you in that way. And I think that's something I'm considering um, that is a little bit more intimate and uses that sexual energy to support a group of people. And in this case, INTPs who are needing support and growth and uh, advice. So that's how I'm satisfying or potentially satisfying that sexual social connection in a healthy way, in a way that I have to make sure that I don't overdo it. Um, and I don't let it take over too much of my time. Right. So what's really interesting about these instincts also is that you're going to have relationships with people who are of varying instincts. Like my partner, Molly, she is an ENFP self-preservation four. It's a very interesting type in that she's still very much an ENFP, but she's self-preservation. So her energy is reined in as an ENFP. I think a lot of people think of ENFPs as like, like zany, right? No, that's uh, zany and all over the place and not able to make decisions. And I'm just compulsively trying things. Ooh, shiny object. Like, no, that's not necessarily always the case. Though she said that she was a lot more like that when she was younger. She's way more reined in and she's way more self-preservation. So she's, when she's at home with me, she's like, very much like lighting candles and I want everything to be cozy and I want a nice blanket and I want a hoodie and I want a book <laughs> and doing more FI things, but also very much concerned with coziness and to the degree where she can overdo it um, very much as I can overdo intensity. Right. And I think it's important to make sure that whichever your instinct is yours, that you're not overvaluing it and overdoing it, but because I'm self-preservation repressed, and I'll talk about what the repressed instincts means in, means in a second. Um, being self-preservation repressed means that um, that her being self-preservation dominant means it kind of rubs on each other a little bit. Where she wants to be like that all the time, I'm like, I don't like really being like that. I don't like having to think about my needs. <laughs> I would rather just work and talk and you know, kind of be in flow or just like moving and and being more assertive all the time. Whereas my version of reining in my sexual instinct, for example, is not putting my opinion out there every single second of every single day on Twitter. Because <laughs> I'm pretty I'm pretty blunt and I'm pretty abrupt and I am I can be abrasive with that sexual one energy if I'm not reining it in and thinking about does anyone really need to hear this right now? Do I need to be this honest? Do I need to be this direct? I don't need to, I don't need to be in attack mode all the time. Right. And I'm sure she feels that too, because she's sexual repressed. So she's, and we're both social second. So we have different relationships to being social second and very comfortable in social situations in different ways. So her being self-pressed dominant, me being sexual dominant, she comes off as a very different kind of ENFP, 
Now, it's not like her being reined in is going to make her look like an INFJ, for example. She's just a reined in ENFP. Whereas I am an INTP and I'm a more amped up INTP, so much so that I get confused for like, you know, people are like, oh, you're really an ESFJ or you're really an ENTP. I'm like, I'm an INTP. Trust me, I'm not like this all the time, <laughs> but I can be very amped up. I can get excited, especially when I'm giving advice and I know someone's connecting or this thing's landing or it's interesting. I get excited, right? So by, and that's because like I'm amping up my energy, like that is my survival tactic is to either run or attack, right? So flight or fight is kind of like that zone with social it's maybe fawn or possibly even freeze fawn fits. I think the social instinct a little bit more like trying to blend in, trying to get along with everybody, trying to make sure that you're fitting into the group or that the group is willing to listen to you or that you're willing to listen to the leader of the group. There's some relationship to fawn there. And then with the freeze, there's a self-preservation part typically fits more of the, the freeze type of response. So you can see how that fits into like kind of natural instincts. And if you're someone like me who has complex PTSD or is, is kind of managing aspects of that, there can be some jankiness there, right? So in my case, I have a challenge with my flight response and I get really up and I don't, and, I, and then I can crash when I get too up for too long, then I crash into a freeze response, which is basically the equivalent of going from sexual dominant and then running out of energy and crashing into a freeze mode. And, you know, that gets into much more complex territory when it comes to complex PTSD. Um, but I'm learning how can I maybe use some of that social instinct, that social teaching instinct that to rein it in and to be, uh, even as a social one, like for me being a social one, like how can I then start to turn into, how can I then be, you know, behave, I guess, <laughs> you know, so instead of being someone that's always trying to make everyone else better, how can I then, okay, rein it in, be a good citizen or be a good INTP or be a good person or whatever, demonstrate that to rein that energy in and then transfer that into a self-preservation energy where maybe I'm maybe a little bit more worried about my own self-preservation needs, like thinking about maybe I should do some Qigong right now, or maybe I should eat something, or maybe I need to shower. Maybe I need to stretch. Maybe I just need to lay down and just like land the plane. Right? So I have a challenge with landing the plane. And so when it comes to the repressed instinct, the repressed instinct is kind of what it sounds like. And Aranio Paez of CP Enneagram uses that language repressed. You might see it as blind spot or, you know, last or something like that. But I like the term repressed because that's sort of what we do. Uh, I tend to make fun of people who overuse self-preservation. And I think most people who have whatever their repressed instinct is tend to make fun of seeing their repressed instinct in someone else. Molly can sometimes make fun of my adrenaline and make fun of my sexual energy, right? <laughs> um, and so it'd be interesting to think of, you know, what do you tend to make fun of? Because that could be a signal of what is your repressed instinct. And so the repressed instinct is just that. It is something that you repress. It's something that you ignore or push down. And Arania Pius talks about it as like a puppy, a puppy that you're not if you're self-preservation repressed, you're like, it's a puppy that you're not feeding. You're not taking care of. You're not give, taking them for a walk. 
You're not letting them poop when they need to poop. You're not letting them pee when they need to pee. You're not letting them find comfort. You're not letting, you're not giving them a hug. You're not making them feel safe. And, you know, if you think about yourself that way, you're not doing that for yourself. And I had so many situations in my life where I put myself into like risky situations where now I have a little more balance and I can realize that, you know, that's not great for me to do. And I need to stop. I need to pull back. I need to drink water. I need to take care of myself and breathe and not not see myself as expendable. And the social repressed instinct, um, I have a friend of mine who is, her biggest fear is like a mob turning the corner and carrying pitchforks and coming after her, <laughs> right? And um, the self-preservation instinct is, or the social repressed instinct is like going and hanging out with people, not just one or two people or being by yourself, but like being embedded in some sort of group uh, putting a faith or a trust in the group that people are going to take care of you and have your back. And um, so it's the equivalent of not letting the puppy go out and play with other puppies or go to their dog park um, and, uh, and have social connections. And then the sexual repressed is not standing up for yourself uh, typically and um, not having an assertiveness or not being able to, um, uh, not necessarily caring about how you, how your energy comes off to other people. Sometimes sexual repress can have an unawareness of their own energy, um, an unawareness of being able to use that energy or to access adrenaline when they need to access adrenaline or to, you know, put their foot down, uh, set boundaries, things like that. Th things that I'm very comfortable with. But it's like not letting a puppy go out and play fight or have, you know, fights or to bark, not let the, not let the animal uh, get angry. Sometimes a lot of sexual repressed will not let themselves get angry or, you know, uppity in any kind of way. And uh, so I think all of those instincts are really interesting to think about in all of those various ways. So the, the impetus for me talking about this was trying to figure out you know, sort of like the coaching angle and how I can better utilize my first two instincts, my sexual and social. Uh, but the self-preservation is also important because I don't want to take on 12 clients in a month and have all of my time taken up by people asking me questions all the time. So that goes into pricing. And then also with pricing, I need to make sure that my needs are taken care of in terms of I've got rent to pay and I've got things I got to do and I've got to eat and I got to do groceries and all of that stuff. So these are all things that like balance each other out and things are things to consider depending on the context and situation. And then when it comes to day-to-day -day life, you know, if you're a sexual dominant and you're self-pres repressed that in, in my case, and then also my, my son who is uh, an ENFP sexual eight, like me, he can push through his like bodily needs. He'll just be like, we'll be playing video games. And because he's excited about the adrenaline of the video game, he's just like, uh, suddenly we stop and I'm like, do you got to use the bathroom? He's like, yeah, I got to pee really bad. <laughs> and he was like holding it and, and, you know, holding it because he's excited about the adrenaline. Whereas I've seen self-preservation kids or even adults get more easily distracted by their self-preservation. Whereas I think that's what you learn as a self-preservation repressed is to like 
become more distracted by the need in order to handle the need, right? Because these are all chemical responses. These are natural things that happen within our human system. And I think the more that we can accept and tap into the idea that we're human and really embrace that and feel that and do something with that, um, then we can create that effortless flow that I'm talking about, right? Effortless flow is not repressing your needs or repressing your, your, feelings or repressing your desires or connections or anything like that. It's not about any kind of repression. It's just about what are the things that are coming up right now? And what do I need to do? It's like, are there feelings I need to feel? Are there things I need to eat? Do I need to drink some water? Is this, what is, it's like managing what's in the way all the time, right? And not getting caught up in the management because like I said, with self-preservation dominance, you can almost put yourself into a situation where you're needing to assess your needs all the time because it's a place that you're comfortable in. You can find comfort in doing self-preservation comfort things. And so maybe you don't travel. Maybe you don't try a new place to live that would actually be easier for you because you actually enjoy meeting your self-preservation needs, enjoy rituals and all of those things, which is fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong but there may be cases where you're overdoing it. Maybe you be overvaluing your self-preservation need and ignoring maybe a one-to-one connection or ignoring going out because you're like, oh, I don't feel safe and I don't want to go out because I need to do X, Y, and Z. Instead of getting the perks of what would come from maybe going out into a social situation. Um, and then in, as I mentioned with the Spider-Man example, so overdoing the social and perhaps ignoring your family or personal connections or, um, you know, not taking care of your needs and putting yourself at too much risk. And then also with sexual dominant, putting yourself at too much risk or overvaluing relational drama uh, and, and doing all of those things. So noting, noticing where those instincts lie, what do you need to pull back from? What do you need to pull up? And in order to reach an equilibrium of sorts, I think is something really interesting to think about. So I've been wanting to do this podcast for a while because I think the instincts are incredibly fascinating. There are so many different combinations to think about. And especially when you, because the instincts don't really live by themselves. That's an important thing to note. The instincts will always be combined with the Enneagram type. The Enneagram type or the passion is typically the heart fixation. So there's always a gut, heart, and head connection. And those three elements fused together are, are what make the Enneagram type. So an Enneagram one, sexual one, in my case, is I'm going to have all of the facets of a one, but it's going to be morphed by the sexual instinct. And because I'm a self-preservation repressed, I don't always come across as like the descriptions. I'm not necessarily a perfectionist. I actually need to get better a little bit at some of the refining details. Um, but generally still need to loosen up and go the growth path of a one to seven and let my mind lighten up and not be so judgmental and, and, and have some innocent fun and enjoy myself, play games and uh, let my kids lead and have, have a good time. Right. So the oneness is there, but then it's morphed by the instinct. So the instinct is not something that lives by itself. So if it's not obvious, what I'm saying is, is if it's not obvious that, you have a certain dominant or repressed or average instinct, then it may be worth considering looking at the subtypes of a particular Enneagram type to see if that's something that that clicks with you there. So 
I have to go do things, but I appreciate you so much for listening. I hope this made sense. I hope this helped you in some sort of a way. And as I said, I am playing with the idea of doing a asynchronous coaching. And if you want to be a beta tester, maybe we can figure this out together. Hit me up at dopaminepodcast at gmail.com with a question. And then maybe I'll give you the link to Telegram and we can have that conversation, kind of kick that off and, and see how this would go. Um, so I have been Christian Rivera, aka C-Note. You have been the person listening, but you are you don't have a voice right now. So if you want to leave a comment or leave a voice message, which is in the link in the description, um, that'd be great. And also dopamine.teachable.com if you want to go check out courses and things we have available. So I appreciate you. Take care of yourselves and take care of the people around you. I love you. And I'll catch you on the next podcast. See ya. So this is a reminder that I'm going to probably start putting at the end of every show to let you know that this is just a show by a person that's just talking about what I think I know. And it's a lot of it is personal opinion or interpretations of ideas. And I personally am not going to attach or take any uh, personal responsibility for how you carry this information forward into your life. It is ultimately your responsibility to continue to research, to filter, to figure out what's true for you, to figure out how the world works on your own terms. From your perspective, I can only talk about my perspective. I can only talk about what I know or what I think I know. So do your best and don't take anything that I say as gospel. I hope that you can take whatever I'm sharing with you as something that you can go out into the world and experiment with. And um, I, I do hope that whatever sticks with you means a lot and does some good for you. Um, if not, do something else. <laughs> All right, this has been a C-Note Media, C-Note Studio, C-Note.Studio podcast. I'll catch you on the next one. And one final thing, I'm looking for sponsors. Uh, If you feel like what you offer, what you do, what you represent is something that my listeners would connect with, please send me an email at dopaminepodcast at gmail.com. Let's talk about numbers and possibilities and um, see if we can work together. That would be amazing. I would love to be able to get more revenue into this show so that I can do more shows and and do this whole thing. So dopaminepodcast at gmail.com, put sponsorship in the title and I will check it out and we will chat. Thanks.